CSN International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live Bible answer program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a question on the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call us at 1-888-827-5276. That's 1-8888-ASK-CSN. Now let's get things started. Here's today's host. And hello, everybody. I'm Jeff Wickwire filling in for Mike Kessler today. And I'm flying solo. There's no co-host. We thought we had somebody who was going to be on with us, and it fell through. So it's me and the Lord uh, helping you with your Bible uh, questions today. And uh, it's so good to have you with us on To Every Man and Answer. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people wondering, what in the world is going on in the world? Well, because our world is upside down, topsy-turvy, so confused, so uh, filled with uh, terrible violence, atrocities, uh, all kinds of things that are making people look and wonder, am I in the end times? Is this the end times? Does the Bible have anything to say about what I'm witnessing in the world today? And we say emphatically here on To Every Man and Answer, yes, your Bible does have all kinds of things to say about the days that we're living in. The Bible calls them the last days, the latter times. And it, th- that little phrase has to do with, or it actually means, if you just transliterated it, the last of the last days. So are we in the last of the last days? I believe we are. I believe the Bible says we are. And that's why I believe we are. So we're here to answer your questions. Uh, whatever your Bible question happens to be, it's not a bad question. It's a good one. If you've got a question, it's worth an answer. So... Give us a call at 8888-ASK-CSN. That's 8888-ASK-CSN. Call right now. We've got some lines open, and we'll get to you as soon as we possibly can, and we're going to answer those questions. So again, 8888-ASK-CSN. I'm Jeff Wickwire, pastor of Turning Point Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, good to be with you. Looking forward to spending the next hour with so many of you. And thank you for tuning in. So let's go right now to uh, the questions. We've got Tom all the way from Alaska. Tom, good to have you with us. How can we help today? It's good to be with you. I appreciate you taking my call. I was curious, um, and I don't know if you saw it or not, uh, the, the movie that had just come out, but they only had it out for two days, uh, God of uh, uh, Heaven and Earth. And, you know, we had a bunch of folks from church go and look at it. And it was new to me, but apparently my understanding is that some of the the logic or, or the reasoning that uh, Rick uh, Larson, I think was his name, the lawyer uh, that did the research in identifying what he believes or says uh, is what is the Bethlehem stop. The, uh, Bethlehem star and looking at the science and actually utilizing science to prove and validate the things uh, of scripture. Where yeah, did, you, did you get a chance to watch the movie? I haven't seen the movie. I do know that it it, it is um, showing a lot of uh, how science has proven uh, some of the the claims of scripture. And, uh, you know, the belief developed, especially after the Enlightenment, uh, the belief developed that science was superior to faith, that science sort of put uh, faith in the shade, 
and that if you believe in science, you would never be a person of faith. And if you were a person of faith, you could not uh, resort to science because science would prove you wrong. And of course, with the uh, advent of evolution, uh, Darwinian evolution and all of that, uh, it, it gained a lot of steam, that, that, that particular notion. But, you know, I can tell you that the Bible is scientifically accurate. Uh, I've looked at so many of the claims of skeptics and atheists who say that science has disproven, uh, some of the claims of scripture, many of the claims of scripture. But if you really do your homework, you find that it's not true. And some of our very best and most brilliant scientists, especially in the 19th century, uh, even the 18th century and earlier, believed that science proved the Bible. As a matter of fact, they went into science uh, so that they would have the Bible confirmed. They, they, they did their scientific studies. I'm talking about somebody like Sir Isaac Newton, who was a very committed Christian, a brilliant man. Yet he went into a lot of his scientific studies to simply prove uh, that scripture was right, to affirm the truth of scripture. So that's really the way that it is. And uh, I believe that um, the Bible is so dependable historically, scientifically, theologically, philosophically, you name it, the Bible is dependable. So I haven't seen it, Tom, but uh, I, I've not read anything bad about it. It seems that it's uh, making some good points, and uh, I, I wish that I had been able to catch it. I don't think it's in the theaters anymore. Right now, it, it played for a few days, but I'm surely will be able to get it via Netflix or some other platform before too long. So uh, I hope uh, that little bit of input helps, but um, I'll tell you, I even talked to a scientist once who was able to point out how the missing day when the sundial went backwards in the days of Isaiah. The sundial went backwards to uh, affirm to Hezekiah that he was indeed healed and that he would have uh, 15 more years on this planet. And he was able to go back and find the missing day. Now, uh, I haven't seen anything on that since then, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if you could, with all the modern technology we've got now, that you could backtrack and chase that back and find that there was indeed a missing day when the sundial went backward as a an incredible miracle of God answering Isaiah's prayer. But that's one of the claims of the Bible, and I have no doubt that it would be proven true. Hope that helps, Tom. Well, it, it does. I, if I may share with you and with the audience, uh, you know, I, I took the time and I was shocked. I actually called Edify Films and actually got to talk to the producer. And he said that very soon, you know, obviously I can't say because it was just in the theater, but very, very soon uh, you'll be able to get the DVD or the streaming for it. And I'm not going to do it justice, but it went through where they used computers and the programs. You know, we can look at the stars and stuff. And, 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 you know, he was worried about, you know, you know, making sure he was looking into this, that it wasn't, you know, like, you know, we're told in Deuteronomy 419, you know, about worshiping stars and astrology and things like right. that. But the, apparently they were, you know, he was actually able to research and there was claim, you know, in, in research where, there was controversy about when, you know, Herod actually died and did some research. And when you, that, that you can use the program 
and look anywhere in the world for, and see what the skies looked at at a particular time. And it goes through and, and it shows where, you know, Jupiter and Venus would have aligned up to be the brightest star. And then he got, he goes through and uses like eight or nine points he talks about in scripture uh, to look at, you know, talking about where the Magi would have, you know, looked at the star, that it would have traveled, where it seems like it stopped, and the optical illusion, and what God did in throwing out the stars and, and producing them to the exact time when this would have happened, and, and, and Christ was born, and, and just all of it, it was, it was truly amazing. Yeah. I think some of the most shocked people, when they finally meet the Creator God, are going to be atheistic scientists who are just going to be stunned to find uh, that their claim of uh, Darwinian evolution did all this is thoroughly bogus. There's just no way all of that we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, and all of the the more recent discoveries with all the the high powered uh, telescopes and and all the ways that we have been able to uh, have a look at God's creation in a way that. A Sir Isaac Newton or a Galileo or, uh, you know, uh, Pascal, all of those people would have loved to have seen, uh, but we can do it now. And it just, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's Psalms 19. That's a fact. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, the horizon, uh, declares his handiwork. Day unto day, they utter speech. In other words, the creation of God, the stars and all of that are talking every day. They talk every day. They Day unto day, they utter speech. Night unto night, they show forth knowledge. Well, what knowledge? The knowledge of God. So when you look at the creation alone, there's no way, and the, the perfect unity of it, all the planets spinning on their axis and everything so finely tuned, to say that that just came to be is takes a level of faith <laughs> that is staggering. I find it much easier to believe that a creator God made it, and it's one of the great testimonies of his reality. So thank you, Tom, for your call. Great call. And I'm going to look for that movie, and I think you're right. It's going to be out on DVD and other platforms. We can see it. So it was called God of Heaven and Earth. So if you haven't seen it, folks, be looking for it. It'll be coming along. Tom, thanks. Stay on the line. We'll get a couple of DVDs for you for calling in, and you be blessed there in Alaska. And let's go now to Roger in Minnesota. Hello, Roger. How can we I, help today? Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I was wondering about uh, in Acts 2, you know, uh, the disciples were um, preaching the gospel to everybody, and um, the people didn't understand, and so, you know, they uh, said that everybody was drunk, you know, and but... Uh, Peter steps up and says, no, we're not drunk, as you uh, say, but um, this is that which was uh, spoken by the prophet Joel, and they were preaching the gospel. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering, um, is that actually the start of Joel's prophecy, or is Peter saying this is like the prophecy of Joel? Because you hear of... uh, different areas, like especially if there's a, a, a leniency of Scripture where there are signs and wonders and things being spoken, you know, uh, speaking in tongues and stuff like that. No, actually, Peter was very clear. He says in Acts 2.16, but this is that, 
which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He makes it very clear that they are watching a prophetic fulfillment. This is that, not a type of that or an illustration of that or a metaphor of that. This is it. This is what Joel was pointing to the day that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon uh, all of mankind. And uh, your young men would see, see visions and your old men would dream dreams and so on and so forth. So what happened on the day of Pentecost was truly amazing. I forget how many languages were represented, but it was many, many different languages that were represented um, for those that had gathered for this uh, ancient tradition of the day of Pentecost. And um, when the Spirit of God fell, he fell in power, he fell in a way that it looked like fire. And the 120 that were gathered in the upper room, and it's worth noting, Jesus' mother was up there. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in that upper room. She also received that incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit and um, tongues of fire. Now, this was a this was a visual um, thing they saw. This was there was an, a, the audio testimony of what happened, the tongues that were spoken, but there was also a, a, a video, a visual, a visual vision that uh, these tongues of fire were resting on the heads of everyone in that upper room. This was an amazing event. They were they were powerfully moved upon. And all of a sudden, by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of them began to speak in languages. The, the Greek word is glosso, a language. To speak in languages that they had never learned, that they did not know. And so here you have thousands of people that are gathered for the day of Pentecost, and all of a sudden, they hear at nine o'clock in the morning, they hear all of these people speaking in languages that they know for a fact they've never learned. They they say so. They, they, they noted that uh, they're speaking in languages uh, that they've not been raised in. How is this happening? And uh, they accuse them of being drunk. Now, they were not saying that they were staggering. That's not what they were saying. They were saying that to the people who were hearing a language that was not in their tongue, it sounded like a garble, gibberish, or like a, a slurring of speech. That's all. They were not staggering around. They weren't falling on their faces. There was, they weren't, they were not acting like people who were out of control, but they were speaking in languages that if, if you knew the language, you understood it. And, uh, but if it was a language foreign to you, it sounded like garble. And that's, that's what they were talking about. But Peter stands up and, and he clarifies the whole thing right off the bat. These are not drunken as you are supposing, seeing it's but the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that spoken of by the prophet Joel. So this was the birthday of the church. This was the church's official birthday. When the Holy Spirit that Jesus had said in John 14, 15, and 16, and other places was going to be poured out and uh, was going to be guide them, lead them, convict the world of sin, all the things that Christ promised, the wonderful, beautiful, amazing gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the world. When Peter was done preaching, 3,000 people got saved. How did that happen? Well, that happened because the Holy Spirit fell, and Jesus had already said, when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin 
and righteousness and coming judgment. So that's what happened. And it was just a marvelous, marvelous event. And I'm, I'm so thankful to this day. Uh, me personally, I'm thankful evermore for the gift of the Holy Spirit. How would we even begin to survive in this world? Really, this world of darkness and so much demonic activity. How would we ever survive it as believers if not for the strengthening, guiding, infused inner strength of the Holy Spirit? We could never make it. But the Lord said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm going to go back to heaven, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And that's what he did. So I, I really appreciate the call, Roger. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, where would the uh, rapture, I'm a solid pre-trib rapture guy. And uh, where does the rapture fall into that? Or is, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'll leave it at that. Well, First Thessalonians 4 talks about the rapture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the rapture. Uh, the main go-to set of verses is in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, we shall not all sleep, <clears throat> but we shall be changed in a moment. The word there from the Greek language is atomos. We get Adam from that word in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, uh, we shall be raised and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Uh, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Think about the speed of the rapture. We're not going to just kind of float up into the sky, but it says in a moment, atomos, so fast, that Greek word, it, it literally is a moment of time that is indivisible. It's so fast, you can't divide it. We think of Enoch. It says in Genesis, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. He was there, and then he was not. And that's how the rapture will be. The church will be here, and then it will not. There's no time. It's not a minute. You know, how fast is the camera flash? The rapture is faster. How fast is the blink of an eye? The rapture is faster. In a in an atomos, a moment, an indivisible, we're there and we're not. And that's how it'll happen. So thank you so much for the call, Roger. A great call, great question. And a stay on the line. We'll get you a, a couple of uh, gifts for calling in. And uh, you be blessed there in Minnesota. And let's go now to Bonnie in Ronan, Montana. Hello, Bonnie. Welcome to Hello. To Every Man and Answer. I'm Jeff Wickwire. How can we help? I have a question and a prayer request. My question right. is, um, in, in the Old Testament, um, how do you distinguish the Holy Spirit being on them in the Old Testament and in us? as Christians in the New Testament. Um, did the Holy Spirit dwell in the prophets and stuff? Um, the Holy Spirit, there's many different situations in the Old Testament. We read about the Holy Spirit being upon people. Uh, like we are told that when Saul, when he was called to be king, that he got amongst some prophets in the area and he began to prophesy, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he was another man. Uh, then we read about the Holy Spirit speaking directly through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the prophets of the Old Testament. He spoke through them. Uh, the Spirit of God would come upon 
people and use them for a particular uh, purpose of God for a season. Uh, there is a difference, though, when you read about God's promise, his covenant to his New Testament people. Well, um, I can just read it to you. It's in, uh, for instance, Isaiah 59. God says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your seed, nor out of the mouth of your seed seed, says the Lord forever and ever. So notice, God says to Isaiah, the spirit of God was upon him. But through Ezekiel, God made a promise regarding the new covenant. And he said, I will put my spirit within you, and I will write my law on your heart. And there, God makes a distinction that he says to to those that are going to partake of the new covenant, the blessings of the new covenant, the promises of the new covenant. He said, not only is the spirit of God going to be upon you, but I'm going to put my spirit within you. Now, that's a distinct difference from what the saints in the Old Testament enjoyed. Uh, his spirit was put within them. And uh, so that was one of the distinct promises of God for new covenant people. That's why in our with our last caller, we uh, talked about Joel's prophecy, where uh, Joel prophesied that he was going to, the spirit of God was going to be poured out in a very unique way. And Peter said, this is that on the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit of God was poured out, and the Spirit of God entered them. Even Jesus made the distinction. He said, he talked about the Holy Spirit coming to be upon them, and then Jesus promised, and he will be within you. He will be within you. And then we have, of course, Second Corinthians five seventeen: if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and all has become new. And, of course, the words of Jesus when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, he was talking about the New Testament promise that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, a miracle would happen in every person that placed their faith in Christ. The Spirit of God would come to live in them, and they would receive, would receive a brand new nature, a brand new creation. They would be made a brand new creation within. Old has passed away, all has become new, and we literally, in the New Covenant, receive a new nature. That's the distinction that I see between Old Testament saints and New Testament. And I would also add uh, that in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, uh, whatever you may uh, think about that, that's my conviction, but uh, the writer of the Hebrews said, speaking of Old Testament saints, these all died in faith, not having received the promise. God having provided provided some better thing for us, that they without us would not be made perfect. Well, what was the promise? Well, the promise was of Messiah. They died believing that a Messiah would come, but they did not receive that uh, coming in their day. They died believing in it, but not having seen it with their own eyes. But also, I believe that includes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon all flesh. And in that outpouring that happened on Pentecost, the birthday of the church, a very unique thing happened. He didn't just come upon them, 
but he came to live within them. And that was the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. I hope that helps, Bonnie. Um, it does. Um, this is my daughter's question. And in Bible study, we've been studying First Peter. And in chapter 1, I believe it was, um, the prophets who prophesied about um, Jesus' Jesus coming was looking to see when these were going to happen. And then it right. said something to the effect that um, Jesus' spirit was in those prophets. So my daughter is really confused. And I Well, it says... I'm sorry, go ahead. I always believed it the way you just said, but um, my daughter's having a hard time wrapping her mind around that. Yeah, that, that's First Peter one ten, starting at verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. That means the Spirit of God was moving on them. Uh, let's go to 2 Timothy 3.16 here, because it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay? And it's profitable for reproof, instruction, correction, and instruction in righteousness, and so on and so forth. Now, we note, Theonoustos, how did we receive the Word of God? It was breathed out. Theos, God, Neustos, breathed out. The Spirit of God moved on the Old Testament prophets, literally bore them along like a gentle breeze would blow a sailboat, okay? It was not some kind of automatic writing or uh, some strange thing like that. But the Spirit of God moved on them gently, and what they wrote was breathed out of God. And they wondered as they wrote these things down, wow, I, I, I'm writing this down, moved on by the Holy Ghost, but I don't understand everything that I'm writing. I wish I understood more. Verse 12 says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister these things. Same thing I was quoting out of Hebrews 11. They died in faith, not having received the promises. So the Spirit of God was on them and moving through them and giving them what they wrote. But being transformed, receiving a brand new nature, God writing his covenant on the hearts of new covenant uh, people, his, uh, writing his law on their hearts, that was a New Testament promise that uh, we're now enjoying. So I understand her confusion. Hope that helps. Don't go anywhere, Bonnie. I'll come right back to you after this break. If you are 65 or older, you know this. Watching your hard-earned dollars fly out the window on healthcare costs is frustrating. Well, here's something that can really help, and it's worth taking a minute to look into. MediShare 65 Plus. MediShare is a community of Christians who share each other's healthcare bills, and it really is a community, too. People encourage and pray for each other. Well, MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. It's a great way to fight inflation, too. You can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years. And it's easy. You can use any Medicare-approved doctor or get 24-7 telehealth access from the comfort of your home. Very worth looking into during Medicare open enrollment, which ends December 7th. If 
If you join right now, your second month share will be free. So don't miss this chance. Call 833-90-SHARE. That's 833-90-SHARE. 833-90-SHARE. I was like, oh, wow. When this young mom came into a preborn clinic, she was confused with nowhere to turn. After meeting with the preborn counselors and seeing her baby on ultrasound, she chose life. If I hadn't saw the ultrasound, it would have been a totally different picture. And I think about this when I look at my daughter, I start tearing up. She would never be here. <laughs> Preborn's network of clinics are there for moms in crisis, offering love, support, and free ultrasound. When a young mother in crisis meets her baby on ultrasound, life becomes very real. And 80% of the time, she will choose life. Through love and compassion, Preborn celebrates the over 200,000 babies' lives who have been rescued. To learn more about the life-saving work of Preborn, call 855-668-BABY. That's 855-668-BABY. Or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to To Every Man and Answer. I'm Jeff Wickwire, pastor of Turning Point Church in Fort Worth, Texas, filling in for Mike Kessler today. We're taking Bible calls, Bible questions, as always. Uh, if you want to give us a call, you can you can do that right now. If you've got a Bible question that you're just burning to have answered, well, we'll trust God to give you a, a decent answer to that question. So give us a call, 8888-ASK-CSN. And we're with Bonnie from Ronan, Montana. And Bonnie called with a great question. What is the difference between the Holy Spirit uh, in the lives of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints? And Bonnie, are you still there with us? Yes, I am. All right. Let me, let me just, uh, sort of summarize this and, and try to, uh, give, just give us a succinct, uh, answer to close this question out. First of all, uh, the Spirit of God was definitely active in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God uh, convicted people, showed people truth. He definitely illuminated them on the Word of God. He was certainly on his uh, prophets. Uh, Moses uh, had a visitation of the Holy Spirit so strong, he glowed in the dark. When he came down from the mountain, they had to put a veil over his face. He was so aglow with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit certainly dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he moved on the prophets, gave the prophets the word of God. No doubt about it. And uh, so he was active. But now, is it the same as New Testament people? I don't think so. Though the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the activity of the Holy Spirit with Old Testament saints. That is, how did he dwell in them or on them? But Note with me that Nicodemus was a teacher of the scriptures. He was high up in the Sanhedrin. He fully understood the Old Testament. He was very versed in Old Testament law. He was an expert in uh, all of that stuff. And yet Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, if those in Old Testament or under Old Testament teaching had the Holy Spirit in the same way, Nicodemus would not have needed to be born again. 
he already would have had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him as an expert in the law, an expert in Moses. He was a teacher of Moses. Uh, If anybody knew the scriptures, it was him. But he looked at Jesus and said, how in the world am I going to enter into my mother's womb and be be born again? What do you mean? He was blown away by the statement. And Jesus said, are you an expert in the, the law and you don't understand this simple truth, Nicodemus? So for me, that kind of isolates the question. If Old Testament people had the Spirit of God in the same way, Jesus would not have told a fully Bible-versed Old Testament man that he needed to be born again. He needed the miracle that was going to come with the new covenant. And so when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, it was the birthday of the church. It was the birthday of the ecclesia, the birthday of this brand new thing called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were all born again in that upper room. And when Peter preached to those 3,000, and they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter told them to repent. 3,000 people on the spot that day were born again into the kingdom of God as the first to come into the new church. So I hope that distinction helps you, Bonnie. It does. I also have a prayer request. All right. Um, I became aware of this last week. Um, We have a warlock in the family. Now, he is not, well, he's living with my granddaughter and um, influencing her and her family quite a lot. And I know greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I have nothing to be afraid of. Um, because Christ is greater. I just need prayer for um, those of us in the family who have realized this, how to um, do battle. Um, Yeah. I I just, um, I've had a, I've heard a whole lot of sermons down through the years on spiritual warfare. Some of them I'm sure was really solid and others were a little bit off, but you know, so I'm just, I need prayer for guidance and um, wisdom on how to deal with this and how to do battle for my granddaughter and her family. Yeah, this is, um, it's a tough one because in our day, no doubt about it, I've been reading so many articles about this, that witchcraft and uh, all the uh, sort of subgroups that come out of witchcraft, new age and whatnot, have definitely been on the rise in America, are on the rise. There's even uh, witchcraft clubs in schools uh, that the school officials have allowed to take place. And so we're in, you know, our country is in a world of hurt. That's no news to anyone listening right now. America, of course, I've grown up in America, been here my whole life. I've never seen America in greater darkness. It's the spiritual darkness is just just at times so thick you could cut it with a knife. Thank God, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So thank God for that silver lining of grace that is always working in the darkest of times. So when it comes to witchcraft, um, especially in family members, of course, you can always share the gospel with them. You can always say, uh, you know, hey, 
uh, let me tell you about Jesus. You can, you can share that. And now they may tell you to take a hike. They may say they're not interested or even worse. Uh, but they may listen. You may sow a seed. So number one, the most powerful weapon against darkness is the gospel of Christ. Romans one says the gospel wrapped up in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel carries within it God's power and it pulls down strongholds, arguments, uh, reasonings uh, that are against, that, that erect themselves against the knowledge of God and literally brings thoughts into captivity to Christ. That's the gospel. And Paul used that gospel to, to Paul. The gospel was the numero uno weapon to use in every city, every town, every hamlet, every person, individual that he talked to. Uh, Paul's go-to weapon was the gospel. Now, after that, prayer. Ephesians 6 is the go-to verse, in my opinion. Uh, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And after giving us the six parts of the armor of God, Paul says, praying always, praying at all times, and with all supplication, with thanksgiving, always praying, because prayer pulls down strongholds. The devil's not afraid of a rich church, not afraid of an, a, a, a church uh, that is large, you know, a mega church. He's not afraid of uh, so much of what we place value in these days regarding a church. The devil's afraid of one kind of church, a praying church that is stuck with the word of God, stuck with the gospel. The devil's afraid of that church. He's not afraid of the people, but he's afraid of what they know to do. And that is pray and wield the gospel. That's the church the devil's afraid of. So what I would do is I would use those two weapons, the gospel and prayer. And, uh, you know, it may take some time, Bonnie, some perseverance. I can tell you my own family, when I came to Christ, nobody in my family believed with me. They, they'll tell you today. They made fun of me. They mocked me. I was the, the joke at the Christmas gatherings and Thanksgiving and all of that. But, uh, my mother finally came to Christ, uh, years after I did. I prayed with my father to come to Christ, uh, before he went to be uh, with the Lord. Um, a couple of my sisters, one in particular, has come to Christ. It took years, but they did. So let me just encourage you, the gospel and prayer are your two greatest weapons. They are the weapons of our warfare. So I hope that helps, Bonnie. It does, and I appreciate it. And I was wondering, this is what I've been kind of praying for them, Um I think if I remember correctly, Second Corinthians, and I believe it's in chapter 4, Paul talks about Satan putting blinders on people's eyes so they cannot see Christ. So my prayer for a lot of people has been that God will remove those blinders. Am I praying in the right way for that? Yes, yes, because they are spiritual blinders. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So it's literally, uh, when Satan has, has six, uh, successfully worked on the mind of somebody that doesn't know Christ, he has literally blinded them. Now, it's a blindness that is hopeless for that person, except for 
the power of the gospel. The gospel tears, uh, penetrates that blindness, tears the blindness off their eyes, and they're able to see the, the glorious light of the gospel. So I hope that helps, Bonnie. And we're going to take a couple of other calls. Uh, but you, there was a great questions. And listen, our prayers are with you. Matter of fact, let me pray for your family. Father, we lift up Bonnie's family. We lift up this man that has been taken by witchcraft. Lord, his mind is blinded. Lord, tear those blinders off that he may see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for calling, Bonnie. And God bless you there in Ronan, Montana. And may God's grace be with you and your family. Thank you. Let's go now to, yes, ma'am. Let's go now to Elsa. San Jose, California. I've been there. I love San Jose. Good to have you with us, Elsa. How can we help? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, I saw a post that said, this year when you're celebrating Christmas, uh, remember that Jesus was a, from Palestine or Palestinian. I, I I know that's a lie, but I mean, where would that come from? So thank you for well, that. That's- Yes, ma'am. That's a great question. And I'm going to guess that billboard came from uh, somehow from Islam. Somebody, um, Islamic, a Muslim, uh, made that claim because, um, this is the battle. It goes, it goes back to not just, um, physical violence that we're seeing all over the Middle East right now and different parts of the world as this ancient hatred is, has been stirred up again in a fresh way that is stunning. The anti-Semitism that is broiling and boiling, not only in uh, Israel afresh and anew and throughout the Middle East, but in our own country. It's just blown my mind how Columbia, Harvard, these Ivy League universities are have been so filled with uh, Muslims that have just been calling for the... Uh, the extermination of Jewish people, just flat out Jewish hatred. So when you see somebody claiming that Jew, that Jesus was Palestinian, I believe that's probably a play on words to cause people to think that even Christianity has somehow, uh, uh, Palestinian Islamic connections. So let me just, let me just make something clear. Jesus was a Galilean Jew, not a Palestinian Muslim. He celebrated Passover, not Ramadan. He was called rabbi, not imam. Um, and that's just the way that it is. He was a Galilean Jew. Now, he was in the land of Palestine, which land we now call Israel, but he was a Galilean Jew. That's what Jesus was. He was a Jew, Galilean. And um, more than likely, he spoke more Arabic than anything, uh, but he also spoke some um, Koine Greek and Hebrew, no doubt about it. But he was a Galilean Jew. So when you see a billboard like that, I'm immediately suspect that uh, somebody Islamic has is making that little play on words. And be careful of it, because there is an incredible ideological battle being waged right now in our world. Uh, you know, the followers of Muhammad against the followers of Christ or uh, uh, Moses. And, uh, it's, it's, it's intense, more intense than I have ever personally witnessed in my life. We need to remember God gave the land to Abraham and his descendants. 
You can read about it in Genesis 12 and other parts of the Old Testament. The, the land that God gave to the descendants of Abraham is clearly spelled out. You can get out an Old Testament map. You can look at the uh, borders of it and you can see that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. There's no way around it. And uh, so I hope that helps, Elsa. Yes, it certainly does. Thank you very much. And thank you for all your great work. Thank you, Elsa. Stay on the line. We'll give you a couple of gifts for calling in. And God bless you there in San Jose. And let's go now to Jeffrey Mineral Wells, Texas. Hello, Jeffrey. How can we help? Hello, uh, Power. I will uh, tell you on that, that last call, I just wanted to point out, too, that uh, Jesus, yeah, is from the land of what became Palestine, but when he was there, was not Palestine, and I believe it was Judea at that time. It didn't become Palestine until yes, Adrian exactly. started calling it that. So he, uh, he never he never knew of the time that he walked there, there was there was no Palestine. But, yeah, it was Judea, uh, became Palestine, became Israel. But it's the same landmass. And, um, but it was given to the Jews. It, it, you just got, to me, the ultimate authority is the word of God. It's always the ultimate authority. And God gave the Jewish people that land. And it's also, I think, worth noting before we get to your question, Jeffrey, um, it's worth noting the Arabs control 99% and some change of the Middle East. They control 99% of it. The land of Israel is less than 1% of the entire Middle East landmass. And that's what God gave to the Jewish people. So it's it's kind of a wonder, it's amazing, and it's also a fulfillment of prophecy that that little sliver of land about the size of New Jersey has become the sore thumb of the entire world. But that's what Zechariah and other Old Testament prophets prophesied, and here we are. It's the sore thumb of the entire world. But let's go to your question, Jeffrey. Thanks for calling. Yes, sir. Uh, well, yeah, the Lord talks in uh, Matthew 24 that, uh, uh, talking about the, the tribulation, said, uh, you know, that there'll be no time like this, no, none that's ever been, none that ever shall be. And then he goes on to say, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And mm-hmm. so my question is this, uh, that the of course, that's 42 months for, uh, in the, for the tribulation. The last half is 1,260 days. But for the elect's sake, for it to be shortened, could that mean that uh, perhaps it's not, say, that last half, 12, 6, 1,260 days? Could it be 1,255? Could it be 1,230? Do you think that, you know, although it's prophesied that 1,260 days, by what the Lord is saying there, could it actually could it, could it be less than, than what is prophesied in the Bible, or what is Yeah, um, okay, two things. Matthew 24, we got to remember, you go back to uh, verse 1 uh, and verse 2, where the disciples, uh, and verse 3, the disciples are asking Jesus, who has just told them, the temple is going to be destroyed, not one stone is going to be left on another, and this is the last time that Jesus is going to be exiting the temple, he's leaving the temple for the last time, and they're marveling at the architecture of it. It was it was an architectural wonder, uh, Herod's renovated temple, and um, Jesus just blew him away, saying, the day's coming, not one stone's going to be left on another. So, of course, they get him alone, and they want to know, well, when is that going to happen? 
So they, the first question they ask him is, when is that going to happen? When will these things, meaning destruction of the temple, be? But then they go further and they say, while we're at it, here's another question, Lord. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 in the form of parables, Jesus is answering those questions. So one of the challenges of interpreting Matthew 24 is when is he answering which question? Because he starts out answering uh, questions that I believe directly refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He's telling them what the signs will be. We read about it also in Luke 21, where Jesus is even more specific He's answering the same questions, but Luke adds that Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you better get out of there. Now, I'm paraphrasing there. You need to get out of Dodge. Get out of Jerusalem. Don't get trapped when it's surrounded by armies. You need to escape because you're going to experience tribulation unexcelled up to that point. And so we know that there were Jews who knew what Jesus had said. And when they saw the Romans surrounding Jerusalem, they got out of there and they fled to the mountains and their lives were saved. And, uh, so Luke adds that little, that little, uh, very, very useful tidbit of information. It happened just as Jesus said. So when it comes to uh, Jesus shortening the days. I think there is a twofold, two-pronged fulfillment to that prophecy, that prediction. It's referring to those, uh, that, uh, got out of Jerusalem and Jesus shortened the time, uh, when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and there were over a million Jews, Josephus tells us, over a million Jews were slaughtered. I believe Jesus shortened that time, and he did give many Jews a, a chance to escape that slaughter. You might even want to, want to call them the elect. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Was he referring to them? I don't know. But did he shorten that slaughter? Well, he said, if I didn't shorten it or give some kind of grace and mercy, none would survive. Well, we know some survived. So it could be that that's part of the fulfillment. Now, when it comes to the Great Tribulation, I don't know if some of those days are going to be shortened. The, the Bible is very clear when it talks about the time of the Tribulation, seven years. There's no way around it, three and a half years and three and a half years, seven years in total, uh, 21 judgments in all falling out, falling on uh, that world, the world of the Great Tribulation. Will those times, could he be talking about Armageddon? I believe that's very possible, that the return of Christ is going to cut short the war that would destroy the entire world. Let's face it, the weapons are there. The nuclear weaponry is there to do away with the entire world. If Christ didn't return at the end of the tribulation, stop that terrible war, commence with the judgment of the nations, and then begin the millennial thousand-year time period. So it could be that Jesus stopping that great war is the second part or the second fulfillment to what he said, 
in Matthew 24. So Jeffrey, you know, even with prophecy, we see through a glass darkly, but I think those are two possibles that Jesus was referring to. I hope that helps. Yeah, it helps a great deal, and I I would uh, kind of think when I look at the, the verse prior to that, verse twenty one, it says that there's been there'll be no there's been no no tribulation like that, nor shall there ever be. And I yeah, I tend to tend to think it may may not lean towards seventy A.D., but it may lean towards the you know the the time of the great tribulation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because when you take the first few verses, if you take the first um, oh eighteen verses. Those can easily be talking about 70 AD. Now, is it double pronged? Absolutely. Because in the last days, Paul the apostle made it very clear in 2 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4, and other places in the uh, New Testament epistles that the things we read about in the first 18 verses are also going to be happening in the last of the last days. So it's double pronged. So yes, I agree. Um, it would be hard to fit verse 21 into 70 AD because we're certainly going to see worse than 70 AD right before Christ comes back in the second advent. So well, I, I hope that helps. Day she'll be shortened, sir. Yes, sir. I know our day yeah. will be shortened very soon. Amen. Amen. And I uh, thank you for a great call, Jeffrey. And uh, stay on the line. We'll get you a couple of gifts for calling in. And you be blessed there in Mineral Wells, Texas, sort of my neck of the woods. I'm in Fort Worth. So God bless you, Jeffrey. And let's go to Debbie now in Sydney, Montana. Hello, Debbie. We've got a couple of minutes left. And uh, how can we help? Well, I would like to know uh, where the Protestant church came from. Was it from the Catholic church, from what Luther did, or was it birthed? in uh, the day of Pentecost? Where... No, the Protestant church came from the Reformation when Luther in the 1500s uh, tacked the 95 theses onto the church door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, it launched a firestorm. Uh, it launched the Protestant Reformation. And Luther, along with Melanchthon, who was sort of his... Uh, right-hand man, uh, the whole world was changed, never to be the same. That's why they were called Protestants, because they were protesting the teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, the, the 95 theses that he tacked on the church door were primarily about the uh, folly of indulgences and um, springing people out of eternity by money that you gave to the Catholic Church, or out of purgatory, rather. So it started in the 1500s and moved forward. So thank you, Debbie. Great call. We're out of time, everybody. Fastest hour in radio. Thanks for listening to To Every Man and Answer. And uh, we'll see you same time tomorrow. Looking forward to it. You be blessed as you walk with Jesus. To find out more about this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. 
To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 